0: Well, good morning to you. If we haven't had the chance to meet, I'm Robbie Itterberg, one of the pastors. And we are continuing this morning a sermon series that we've been in for a little while now called Full Life. And it comes first from John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And so we've been asking ourselves, what are our lives full of? Are they full of what Jesus came to give us, or are they full of all sorts of other things that are substitutes or even counterfeits for that full life, which really just leave us looking for more? I encourage you, if you want to catch up on any of the messages that we've been looking at, as we've been looking at those aspects of full life, you can find those on our YouTube channel, PCTRNJ, or wherever you get podcasts. But as I was thinking about the message for today, I was thinking about that advertising campaign that featured the most interesting man in the world. Do you remember that campaign? Where the idea was there was this fairly normal but good-looking older gentleman who would do some of the most outrageous things you could imagine without breaking a sweat or becoming even the least bit stressed. And so, for instance, he would, in one ad, was freeing an angry bear from a bear trap. In another, he was bench pressing people. On another, he found the fountain of youth but refused to take a drink because he wasn't thirsty. In another one, he parallel parked a train. (laughs) Yeah, some of you are going to get to that in a minute. (laughs) But behind the campaign was this idea that he would be a man rich in stories and experiences like the audience longs to be. And the campaign was tapping into this very real human desire to have lives that would be intriguing and interesting to others. Really, they were tapping into the idea that we long for full life. Because full life is intriguing to others. Full life is interesting and inspiring, especially to those who, whose lives lack the fullness that they observe perhaps in you. And so we're going to look at this this morning through the lens of First Peter chapter 3. If you'd like, you can follow along on the screen. But let's listen for God's word speaking to us together this morning. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But if in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. "'Keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their, e- of their slander. "'For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. "'For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. "'He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit.' After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word that is alive and active, that's sharp as a double-edged sword, that cuts through bone and marrow to the core of our being, to our soul. This moment, may you use your word to speak to us, but even more to shape us, that we can be a people of full life and hope to share. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So most of Peter's letter is addressing the reality of suffering, including the passage that we have just read. But he's not just talking about suffering in general that is common to our human experience. He's specifically addressing the suffering that comes to those who are Christians, who are followers of Christ. In Peter's day, it was actually common for Christians to be persecuted simply because of their faith, because of their profession of Christ as Lord stood in stark contrast to Caesar's demand and his own claim that he was Lord. And so they were persecuted. Some blackballed from participating in industry and commerce and others arrested, physically punished, or even killed. And I think for us, it's hard to relate to these ideas of suffering because we are so blessed as Americans to be able to gather freely in worship and to proclaim the name of Jesus as Lord without threat of persecution or at least direct harm. But that's not the case for Christians across the world. In 2021, 360 million Christians were persecuted because of their faith. Everything from simple discrimination to others having church buildings damaged or destroyed, and even almost 6,000 were killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ just last year. And we are blessed to not face that every day, but I invite you just by this reference to pray for brothers and sisters around the world who suffer. And yet we do acknowledge that there is still suffering and maybe even increased suffering in America because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Certainly there's increasing ridicule for those who would put our faith in Jesus There's maybe rejection that you've experienced at the hands of family or friends or others in your life because you've claimed Jesus is Lord. Maybe you've missed opportunities for advancement, opportunities for, you know, something to happen in your career or some other way because you chose to stand on the values of the kingdom of God rather than on the values of the world. Sometimes, as Peter acknowledged, suffering is something that happens to us. And other times, as followers of Jesus, suffering is something we choose. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how, as a follower of Jesus, we're invited to take up our cross daily, to sacrifice, to love people that sacrificially, to put their interest in front of our own. There's also the reality of suffering that comes when we profess Jesus as Lord. We're acknowledging that he has an authority over our life. We're acknowledging that we're giving up our desire for convenience, for happiness, for ease, and we're embracing his plan and his will, which sometimes is a much, much more difficult road. Believing that what God wants for us is also what's best for us. And so Peter is saying to the church, to us, to them, Isn't it better for you to suffer for doing good than for doing evil? Isn't it better for you to suffer because you're living out your faith, because you're sacrificially serving, because you're following the path of Jesus rather than your own self-interest? And in doing so, that's actually following the way of Jesus itself. Jesus himself came to do good for us, for humans, and yet suffered at the hands of Of the people that he came to do good for. And Peter is saying in the midst of the trial and the suffering, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared. How can you be prepared for something? Whatever it is. To to be prepared, you have to have already considered that that thing is a possibility and then have thought through what you need and what you will do if that thing actually happens. So for instance, if at any moment we believe the power could go out, maybe at night at your home, you have to already have considered that possibility and what you're going to need. It's not the right time to go, I wonder where the flashlights are and did I put batteries in them when the power's already out? We need to have already considered it and prepared for the moment. And Peter's saying, be prepared always at any moment throughout your life to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And I love that. I love what Peter is saying. He's saying, be prepared to give an answer. Not be prepared to force your perspective, your belief, your relationship with God on somebody else, but instead be prepared to give an answer when they ask. And Peter's assuming that people are going to ask. Why is he assuming that? I mean, I think there's two, two conditions, at least, that need to be met where people will begin to ask about this hope or to ask about anything. The first is there has to be something interesting or intriguing about us, doesn't there? We're not filled with a ton of questions and curiosity when we encounter people who are boring, are we? <laughs> You know, when people who have no experiences, have no stories, have no insight or information or opinions to share, we're not filled with curiosity for people who do all the things that we do in the same way that we do them, act like us, think like us. We have questions when somebody approaches life differently, don't we? We've got questions when they've had experiences we've never had, when they have insights and thoughts about something that we've never considered. I mean, who wouldn't have questions for the most interesting man in the world, right? We all would. And here's the thing, the early church was incredibly intriguing because their way of being, following the way of Jesus was so different and so distinct from the Roman world in which they lived. See, in the Roman Empire, there wasn't really ethics driving their behavioral choices. It was mostly about what was legal. If it's legal, feel free. Because even their concepts of the gods that they worship did not include an ethical system. The gods didn't care necessarily how they lived day in and day out. The gods just needed to be appeased. And so if it was legal, feel free. Have at it. But the church had come to a very different way of living and being in some very particular ways. Specifically around their sexual ethic around their value of life, and how they would deal with persecution and their enemies. See, the church had embraced God's plan and design for sexuality, not following kind of the Roman view of things that had this ethic of sex, that, hey, anything goes. You know, it's just really an appetite to be fed, and so go for it in whatever way you would like. And they also had this incredible value for life because God had given life as this incredible gift. In the, in the Roman Empire, the father could decide at any moment that he didn't want a child. A child was born and if it was inconvenient, if it was undesirable, the father could just leave that child out in, outside to be what they called exposed. And children would die all the time. But the Christians, the followers of Jesus, ran around scooping up these babies to love them and care for them and raise them as their own because God values their life and so, the, so would they. Plagues and disease would come and everybody would bail out from the cities because it was a place of danger. But the Christians would move into the cities and would take care of the people, not just the followers of Jesus, but anyone who was sick because they valued life. They embraced an ethic in the face of persecution that they would love their enemies, that they would pray for those who persecute them, offering them forgiveness. See, it was weird. That's weird. It didn't make sense to the Roman world watching them, and yet everybody noticed, everybody saw it. And some reacted with hatred and bitterness and condemnation and persecution, and others reacted with a curiosity like, huh, what's that about? Why would they live this way? I'm just trying to make it through every day, and yet they seem to be walking and living with this lightness and purpose and joy and, and love and compassion and hope. Like, why? What do they have that I don't have? See, people are going to ask questions when they're intrigued and interested in what they see. And so one of the questions for us is, are our lives interesting? Are they intriguing? Are they distinct and different from the world we find ourselves in? Or do they just look a lot like everybody else? Just with a label of Jesus over the top of it. See, this whole series has been about full life. The characteristics and the practices of full life in Jesus Christ. And when we let that life of Jesus grow in us, I do believe people are going to notice. They're going to see something different because they're going to see something they long for. And they're going to ask you to give an explanation. They're going to ask you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So are our lives intriguing enough for people to ask? See, the other condition that I think needs to be met for people to ask is that we need to actually be close enough to them. We have to stick around long enough to have a relationship where they feel comfortable asking the questions, right? That, that it's a pretty rare person who is going to just start asking questions of some stranger that they've just met, even if they are the most intriguing person they've ever known. Most of the time, it takes a level of comfort, a level of trust, a level of relationship for those questions to start coming out. But when we have relationship, is it not really natural for those questions to start coming both ways? I I mean, in the course of your friendship, don't you naturally ask your friends about what makes them tick and what's important to them and what they value and don't you notice things about them and then have a curiosity and even just simple things like you notice they got a nice haircut. Hey, where'd you get your haircut? because we just want to know. And we value them, and we value the relationship, and we want to know all about them. In the course of, of our friendships, our friends will also naturally begin to ask us things. You know, why do you cry when you watch movies? Where do you get your hope? Man, things seem so stressful, and yet you're so even keel. Peter is assuming that the church will have relationships with people who don't follow Jesus. He's assuming that they'll have relationships with people outside of the church who don't know the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. And so they're going to invest in those relationships so that those friends can see their life of intrigue and begin to ask the questions. And so the question for us is, who are you close to that's far from Jesus? Who are you close to that they're far from the hope that you have in Jesus Christ and how can you move closer towards them so that the opportunity that can come for you to be prepared to give an answer to them when they ask you to give the reason for the hope that you have. The hope that Peter is saying, that hope that is in Jesus Christ as Lord, this amazingly good news Right? Yes, Jesus is Lord. It's, it's good news because he, we're saying, yes, he has the authority in our life. He's God in our lives. So what he says goes, what he says matters, but we're also proclaiming with that, that he is also good to us and does good for us. Right? Like the good Lord that would take care of his people. See, the one who has authority over us is also the one who suffered for us. Peter said in, in verse 18, he said, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. See, Jesus, the Lord, is the one who laid down his life to care for us. But Peter goes on with the rest of this passage, and it's one of the most confusing in the entire New Testament. So if you don't understand it, you're in good company. I'm not sure I really get all of the pieces to it either. But What Peter is at least clearly saying is that this same Jesus who's Lord, who laid his life down for you, is also the Lord over death when he rose again. He is the Lord over sin, over hell, over the spirits of rebellion and disobedience who have been at work in the world since the ancient days of Noah and beyond. This is the Lord. And when we put our hope in him, it's a hope that will last. And so what gives you hope for today? What gives you hope for tomorrow? Do you have a hope that will sustain you in the times of trial and of suffering and hardship? Because oftentimes the things that we put our hope in are things that won't last. We put our hope in that finally someday we will gain some sort of financial freedom or security. We put our hope in that someday we're going to finally have that relationship that we've longed for. We put our hope in that someday maybe we'll get the approval or the acceptance of that person. We put our hope in that someday maybe our kids or our grandkids will launch and be self-sustaining, contributing members to society. And all of those are fine hopes to hold on to. And yet they are also all temporary and fleeting and can be taken away. And they can be, our hopes can be crushed in a moment. But see, this hope in Jesus Christ as Lord will last and can satisfy us. Because this hope says that no matter... No matter the mess you've made of your life, he died for your sins. No matter what you've lost, you have already gained more than you could possibly imagine in a relationship with the eternal father. No matter the hurts and the wounds that you carry, there is healing for you in Jesus Christ. No matter how empty you feel, he can fill you to full and overflowing. No matter the suffering or the trial that you're living through, even if you were to die, there is something greater for you. On the other side. See, this is a hope that will last. But it's a hope not just meant for you individually, it's a hope that's meant to be shared. For you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But Peter says, do this with gentleness and respect. In other words, in a relationship, gentleness, where you don't have to push Jesus on them, where you're not engaging with harsh and condemning tones or attitudes with respect. Respecting where they are now. Respecting where they've come from. Respecting that they have a story and that they're on a journey. Respecting that God is the one at work in their life. Respecting that it's not your job to convince them or coerce them to come to faith. Because only God can draw them to Jesus. Only Jesus knows the details of their life. That he knows the words to speak of encouragement, of conviction. So in other words, we can relax a little bit about this whole thing with sharing Jesus. Take the pressure off of the moment. And just appreciate that you aren't God. And you don't have to be. But you might have been put by God into somebody's life simply to share the hope that you do have the reason for the hope in Jesus Christ. Don Everts and Doug Schaup worked for a college ministry called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship on college campuses for a lot of years. And they started to realize that, that students were changing and they realized that the world was changing. That these, these students had been steeped in postmodern ideas and their concepts of trust and authority and institutions had begun to sh- shift so much that the students no longer trusted the Bible. They no longer trusted pastors. They, no longer, they were no longer holding on to the same things that they did in the past. And so they realized they needed to start experimenting and doing some things differently. And incredibly, over the course of 10 years, as Doug started to change all of his tactics of evangelism and his work with students, he saw well over 2,000 students come to a faith, make a profession of faith and hope in Jesus Christ. And they decided to go back and try to learn what they could learn and figure out, was there anything other than just being grateful that it happened, was there anything they should know? And what they discovered were these patterns in, their, in the stories, There were patterns of how people were coming to faith. And they came to name this pattern as the five thresholds. In other words, acknowledging that there there were these five phases that students were moving through as they went from being far from Jesus to ultimately coming to a faith in Jesus. We often think of it in one step, like you got to get them from where they are to say yes to Jesus in one move. But there's five phases And it begins simply with needing to move from a place of distrust to trust. Do you know that most people outside of the church do not trust Christians? And especially me. I'm the most suspect of all. Because I'm a pastor. And just think, they've got this distrust because of the last 40 years of strife and scandal. Child abuse in the church that's been covered up. The scandals of financial scandals and infidelity scandals among leadership. And so before they can ever begin to even consider that Jesus might be a good thing, they have to begin to even trust a Christian. And as they begin to trust a Christian, they might might begin to trust you and have a relationship with you, but then they've got to move through this phase of indifference to curiosity. Sure, they like you, you're a friend, but they don't really care what you believe. Because don't we live basically in a world that says, you just believe whatever you want, let's just not really talk about it on these spiritual things. Because you can believe your things, I can believe my things, and that's all good as long as we're not interfering with one another. And so they have to move from a place of of indifference about what you believe to become curious. Have you ever had somebody help you become curious about something? (laughs) What did that look like? How did that happen? My guess is it was because they became curious about you that they started to ask you questions about what you're interested in, what are your joys, what are your pain points, where do you hope life will take you, and that began to open you up to the things that they were interested in because you became curious in return, and so maybe it was a teacher that took an interest in you, and then suddenly you took an interest in math or in English. We can foster curiosity in others by being curious about them, and in that process, help them become open to move from a place of closed to change to becoming open to change, right? Where they begin to consider now what it might be like to have more of what you have in your life. And, and could that make a positive difference? Could Jesus begin to change things for them the way it seems like they've changed thing, he's changed things for you? And so they can move to a place now of curiosity, of openness to change. And then you can be a part of helping them move from just kind of wandering aimlessly to seeking Jesus intentionally. That's that fourth phase. Because everybody's wandering until they they have found Jesus. Jesus. Right? They're wandering, and we're all wandering just kind of hoping that we're going to stumble across the answers for life, something that's going to make life worth living. But you can help point them to the one that makes life worth living. Because you can start to help them consider that Jesus might have something to say into their situation, into their circumstance, into their trial, their pain, into their hopes and longings. And you can begin to share specifically the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. And then hopefully, as we pray that Jesus will move, he will bring them across the threshold into the kingdom of God, putting their faith and their hope in Jesus as well. Doug and Don wrote a book called I Once Was Lost, and in it they share this story. Story of a girl named Maite. Maite was a freshman in college, and she could barely tell somebody that she was a Christian, let alone tell them about Jesus. She was so terrified. But there were two girls, her floor in her dorm, that were roommates, and they were fighting constantly. And so those girls came to her and said, hey, would you move out of your single room and move in with one of us? Because we can't stand living together. <laughs> and of course, Maite, like all of us, I think, was like, yeah, no. <laughs> I got a single room. This is, this is good living here. But she felt God pressing in on her that she needed to move into this room. And so she changed her mind, and she moved in with Sarah, one of these girls. And Sarah couldn't really understand why she had changed her mind, and she kept pressing and pressing. Why did you change your mind? Why did you change your mind? And, and Maite relayed the story that she's fumbling around the words, and she's like, well, you know, you see, I kind of felt like maybe it was like I, I should do. Okay, honestly, I just felt like God told me I should do it, so I'm moving in with you. <laughs> there was nothing smooth about it. It was awkward and clumsy. And Sarah's response is, well, whatever. <laughs> I'm just glad you moved in. And they started to become a little bit closer and Maite became a little more bold telling her that she was going to Bible studies and when she'd go to church and she came to realize that Sarah had a lot of challenges and struggles in her life. And that she, Maite had, she knew the one who had the answers to her problems. And, and Sarah started looking for answers elsewhere and she started reading about new age and was becoming curious. And so one night as they were both, they just turned out the lights and they're trying to go to sleep. Maite's like, I can't sleep. And she knew God was pressing in on her again that she needed to say something. And she could feel her heart pounding like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. But she knew she couldn't do nothing in this moment. So she took a deep breath and asked Sarah if she would like to read the Bible with her and start to think about what does Jesus say about some of the things she's wondering about? And Sarah said, sure, when can we start? And so they started reading the Bible together. And Sarah became enamored with Jesus, his character, his person, what he came to accomplish And she wanted to go deeper and wanted more and more of it. And and later in the spring, there was a retreat coming, and Maite invited Sarah to come on the retreat. And the first night of the retreat, Sarah prayed that God would give her a sign. She told Maite that all the pieces seem to be in place, like so much of this makes sense, but I just can't put my trust in Jesus. I need some more evidence. I'm I'm a science major after all. And so the next morning... There was a teaching that came out of John chapter six. The speaker was talking about how Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes in, whoever feeds on me will never go hungry. They will never be thirsty again. This whole talk is about bread and bread and bread and and Maite is like, talking about bread so much, this is weird, but about somewhere in the middle of the message, Maite realized that when they were on the ferry ride to the island where the retreat was taking place, they had played this word game. And of all the words in the entire dictionary, Sarah had chosen the word bread. <coughs> and when Maite realized that, she, her head snapped over and she looked at Sarah and their tears rolling down Sarah's cheeks. And she just looked back at Maite and mouths the word bread. She couldn't believe that God would give her a sign that she needed Later that night, another speaker invited anyone who wanted to come, anybody who wanted to come and receive the life that Lazarus had received, wanted to be made new, wanted full life in Jesus Christ to come forward. And at that moment, Sarah stood up, unashamed, moved forward, putting her hope in Jesus, who would not forsake her, who would satisfy her hunger, who would always be there for her, her Lord and her Savior. It was a journey. And Maite invested in the relationship over time, patiently, giving an answer for the hope that she had. And then that day, Maite says, it was more joyful the day that Sarah came to faith in Christ than when I did myself. Who are you close to that is far from Jesus? Who can you invest in? Who can you allow in to see a life of intrigue as the full life of Jesus Christ grows within you? Who is it that you can invite with curious questions to consider what Jesus might have for them? Because there is a hope in Jesus Christ that is more lasting than anything that the world has to offer. And there's a world of people hungry for it. Friends, this is the hope that we celebrate At the table, when we come to the communion table, we see vividly the hope of Jesus Christ on display. We see the Lord of our lives willing to lay himself down for us. We see the promises of hope that last through trial and suffering. We see the hope that lasts for an eternity. Friends, this is the table of Jesus Christ. You are invited to receive it. As we do, let us prepare to affirm the faith, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ.